0: Good evening, everyone. Last week, we talked through some of the rapid societal changes that occurred in the mid-1800s, especially the rise of industrial technologies and the influx of workers to cities to keep those factories running. Workers being packed into run-down slums wreaked havoc on public health, and after some time the English people and government finally began to do something about it. First, reform advocacy groups formed in the 1830s and the 1840s which were geared towards raising awareness and campaigning for political change surrounding the terrible living conditions of working people. Many of these had long elaborate names, like the Metropolitan Association for Improving the Dwellings of the Industrious Classes, or the Society for the Improvement of the Condition of the Laboring Classes, both of which worked to improve housing for the poor. Then you've got the Association for the Promotion of Cleanliness Among the Poor, which also has a long name, but also did important work by providing public bathhouses. Finally, you've got the Health of Towns Association, which thank God only has four words. That one was also particularly notable for having some famous members of nobility. All this agitation started to lead to some political change. Although, as these things usually go, it took some time. In 1846, a bill was introduced to address some sanitary conditions of urban communities and then was promptly voted down. In 1847, a year later, another bill was introduced, and then also killed off. Finally, in 1847, there were a few small bills that were passed that allowed some new officers to be appointed to manage public health, at least in one city, Liverpool, where problems were especially bad. Through all of this, those advocacy groups I mentioned were hard at work raising awareness, especially the Health of Towns Association. Pamphlets were being handed out, criticizing the government for not doing more, and arguing that many deaths were preventable if living conditions were just better. The pamphlets weren't the only thing arguing for reform. A major cholera epidemic in 1848 broke out, spreading first from Russia to then France and then Germany, and finally to England. Many fell ill, and it was another grim reminder that change was necessary. As we clearly see around us in these times of coronavirus, as tragic as they are, crises often have a great potential to push for change. In August of 1848, the Public Health Act was finally passed, which created the General Board of Health, who served as a centralized agency that could help local municipalities make improvements. As always with politics, some compromise was necessary and so the Public Health Act was not quite as comprehensive as activists would have liked. It allowed the creation of local boards of health when petitioned by one-tenth of the taxpayers in that region, or when the average mortality rate in an area was more than 23 per thousand people, because apparently we can only do something about problems when enough people die. Those boards would then work to address water, sewage, cemeteries, and other potentially relevant health issues. Through these efforts, some cities actually got functional sewage systems and water supplies, who would have thought. A great deal of cities also created positions in governments that were to address health problems, although they were not very powerful. Unfortunately, not that much was completed on account of heavy opposition by special interests. Local officials got mad because they were sometimes losing autonomy. Engineers didn't like the new competition from government. Doctors didn't like that there was less demand for their services. Water companies, sewage companies, other government agencies, the list of enemies grew and grew, until 1854 when the Public Health Act was just not renewed by the government, and so the General Board of Health was pretty much abolished. As always, political change is hard, and often fluctuates back and forth. For about two decades in England, little change was made, although plenty of data was still being collected about the state of health in England. Reports on all kinds of diseases, on the diets of working-class families, and of housing were created by the government, and it was still abundantly clear that there were huge problems, but little action was taken. Finally, in 1869, a new commission was studying the administration of public health in England, and concluded correctly that it was a giant mess. Based on their recommendations, public health agencies across the country were standardized, and each district had a medical officer of health, a person who was actually in charge of improving the health of that region, and was often even a doctor. Imagine that, having a doctor help make health policy. These were basically the first ever professional public health workers in charge not just of improving individual patient health, but of the health of a whole population. These folks began investigating and solving problems across the country, slowly but surely. In 1879, a study showed that most of the larger urban communities in England had at least a constant water supply at that point. Not maybe the cleanest water, but at least they had enough to use. Plenty of work was still needed, but at the very least, the government administration was in place to be able to actually address some of the prominent health issues of the day. So that's England. They were the earliest to make some of these administrative changes, but certainly not the last. Many of these trends were to happen around the world in almost the exact same ways. For example, over here in the United States, while population density did not grow nearly as quickly as in England, it still grew, especially when there was a massive influx of immigrants from Europe, who became the new working-class citizens living in awful conditions. People were sick, and epidemics broke out. Of many of the same diseases we saw in England's city slums, like cholera, smallpox, typhus, and typhoid, But the U.S. also got some bonus diseases, like yellow fever. Over time, there was widespread outcry, and advocacy groups with long names were made. And with mounting political pressure, states began to create departments of health that studied and promoted public health. They had efforts, like distributing educational pamphlets on diseases, or having physicians inspect homes to meet health standards. By the end of the 1800s, the United States, like England, had functional government bodies for investigating and fixing public health problems. I could detail similar stories in France and Germany, too. These trends were repeated in many places. Basically, bigger, more densely packed cities led to poverty and terrible living conditions, which worsened public health problems like disease outbreaks, which caused uproar and finally political change. The details may vary, but the overall story is much the same, and the end result are governments that are centralized and organized enough to actually make a large dent in public health issues, for the first time ever. Next week, we'll talk about some other policy changes that protect workers, and their effect on public health. As always, thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach me, try the links in the show notes, or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, too, to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music.